In their new book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success, Ran Abramitsky and Leah Bustan make the case that today's immigrants are just as successful as European immigrants of the past and that the children of immigrants, including those from the poorest countries, are more upwardly mobile than U.S.-born residents raised in families with small, similar income levels. Ultimately, they argue that immigration is good for America and immigrants and their children ultimately become Americans both then and now. Their book is published by Public Affairs and brings to our show Ran Abramitsky, a professor of economics and senior associate dean of the social of social sciences at Stanford University, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, and Leah Bustan, a professor of economics at Princeton University and the co-director of the Development of the American Economy Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Welcome, both of you, to our show. Hi, we're here. Ah, Good to be here. So thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, since I have two of you, I'm going to address, I guess, some of the questions to each of you individually, but jump in if you have something you want to add, okay? Sounds great. Sounds good. And this one, I'm going to ask both of you, what do you think most Americans typically know and think about immigration today? That's the big general question. Well, we set out to write our book because we think that Americans have a lot of myths about immigration, um, and we wanted to bring in real data to hold up those myths to scrutiny. Um, so one of the things that I think many Americans believe these days is that we've never had more immigrants in the country uh, than we do now. And maybe New Yorkers don't think this because New York is very well steeped in its history of immigration. But I think around the country, this is um, sort of a widely shared belief. And that belief is just wrong. Uh, we actually had just as many immigrants as a share of the population 100 years ago as we have now. So if you think about the Ellis Island generation, uh, around 14% of the population was foreign-born then, and the same is true today. We're definitely not in a unique flood or immigration crisis, as you sometimes will hear. No, the misconceptions are include uh, that immigrants remain stuck in an underclass, that they fail to assimilate, they cause crime, take jobs away from U.S.-born workers, and uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric about the dangers of of immigrant crime and drug trafficking, you say are largely false. Uh, Now, Rand, why do these misconceptions persist? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So as Leah said, you know, the idea is here is to, you know, bring this data and long-term perspective on the immigration debate, which is often based on fear and anecdotes rather than on evidence. Now, why do they persist? It's a good question. I think part of it is that uh, there is this nostalgic view uh, that European immigrants in the past somehow assimilated very quickly, while new immigrant groups today do not attempt to assimilate and integrate into the U.S. economy and society. And, and this is actually where the, this phrase streets of gold came from. Uh, you know, this shorthand for the idea that you could arrive to the U.S. Uh, with nothing in your pocket, but quickly find opportunity. But of course, Leah and I chose this title because an, this unknown immigrant in the 1900s, an Italian immigrant, said something like, 
I came to America because I heard the streets there were paved with gold. But when I got here, I found out three things. First, that the streets were not paved with gold. Uh, second, that they were not paved at all. And third, <laughs> that I was the one expected to pave them. So yeah. it's exactly what we are trying to do here is in this research we do over the last 15 years, uh, we build new big data sets to assess uh, our common myths about immigration and the American dream over the last Uh, two centuries. And it, it began early in our history, didn't it, Leah? The Naturalization Act was passed in 1790. What did it say? Um, well, 1790 is, I think, the first time um, that the American government began to think about excluding um, certain groups just on the basis of uh, their background or their, or their heritage. So in 1790, it was the Citizenship Act um, saying that Um, only free white persons could become citizens of the country. If they um, had resided in the U.S. for two years. For two years. And, but, but the key um, you know, word in there is that you had to be white. Hmm. Um, if you flash forward to 1882, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, immigrants at the time uh, from China and then later from the rest of Asia were excluded on their face. Um, and that's been a persistent uh, story within uh, U.S. history. Um, so, you know, we were really compelled to write this book because uh, if we feel like we might be on a precipice again of um, additional immigration restriction, um, we're, we're seeing a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment these days, um, politicians who are suggesting maybe we should try closing off the border again. And we felt as economic historians, well, we've seen this in the past um, and we want to assess, you know, what the consequences would be. If we went through this again. And, Ren, even after the Chinese Exclusion Act, didn't other immigration policies discriminate against Asian immigrants, including the literacy requirement of 1917 that expanded the Asiatic Barred Zone, which excluded all Asian and Pacific Islanders until 1953, 1952? Yes, exactly. And, you know, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was the first law in the United States that uh, excluded a particular group based based on on race there, there was the one you mentioned there was the 1907 gentleman agreement with the emperor of japan to mm -hmm. not send uh, japanese uh, immigrants to 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 this country and uh, and yeah there, so there's a is a there's a lot of uh, 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 history of uh, of exclusion then of course the the more a famous one and the more uh, substantial one even is the 1921 and the 1924 uh, immigration quotas based on country of origin and this this one didn't only exclude asian immigrants but also favored heavily favored immigrants from western and northern europe over immigrants from southern and eastern europe like italian and russian and so, so on. wasn't that intended to limit the immigration of catholics and jews yes so, so, oh go ahead Leah. oh no uh, um yeah absolutely um The groups that were targeted were newer arrivals um, from Italy, from Poland. Um, so those were heavily Catholic countries uh, from the Russian Empire, which included um, a, a number of Jewish immigrants. Um, and those quotas were in place from the 1920s all the way through to 1965. Um, so when we think about certain key moments um, like uh, the beginning of World War II and the Holocaust, and immigrants who are trying to come in um, from Central and Eastern Europe and were turned away. Um, this is really a legacy of uh, those immigration exclusion acts um, that we've been discussing.
Right. So, so immigration declined from about like a million per year in the period of the age of mass migration, this Ellis Island generation, to about 150,000 with the 1921 and 1924 uh, immigration restrictions. And, uh, and, and again, heavily favored immigrants from Northern and Western Europe. And then in the interwar period, we see very little migration, of course, with some important exceptions like the Bracero program and, uh, you know, individuals displaced by the Second World War. But immigration uh, declined from about, uh, you know, 14% of the population to about 5% of the population uh, around the 1970. And this relates to what Leah said before, that people have this perception that immigration today, we have a lot of immigrants, you know, 14% of the population uh, is immigration is are immigrants, but but then immigra- immigrants were fourteen uh, percent of the U.S. population for fifty years, uh, you know, before the nineteen twenties. Did it matter which party was in power when uh, immigration the these immigrants were limited from coming here? Well, that's what was really interesting in some of the work we've done. Um, we've gone back into the congressional record, which are all of the speeches that are given on the floor of the House or the Senate, um, to assess long-term patterns in anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and today we think of um, immigration policy as being very partisan and polarized by party. Um, but during this earlier period with exclusion acts in the 1880s and 1920, 20, 1921, 1924, um, this was actually a very bipartisan um, uh, moment where both parties came together to try to restrict immigration at the time. The uh, well, now we have uh, the, the uh, President Trump's anti-immigrant policies to consider. What was the impact of those? Uh, well, go uh, ahead, Ron. So, so the you know with immigration uh, in, in the you know so the last uh, substantial immigration uh, reform was you know the one in 1965 you know, that actually replaced this quota system based on national origin uh, and expanded the number of slots for for legal entry uh, quite substantially. And uh, and since then, you know, a lot of the a lot of what we see uh, in the last uh, 20 years, 30 years are more executive orders rather than uh, immigration reform that is very uh, organized. So Trump, you know, like uh, uh, famously had some, uh, you know, like a Muslim ban and some uh, quotas that uh, limited even legal immigration. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, there is no serious immigration reform that was done uh, recently, and uh, the country is ready for that. I think. Well, he said that, I'm quoting, there is a growing humanitarian and security crisis at our southern border. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. Uh, but according to the Cato Institute, undocumented immigrants across the nation have lower rates of incarceration than native-born uh, citizens. Uh, on the other hand, uh, wasn't his uh, uh, his promise to limit immigration a reason that many people voted for him? Yeah, these days we're seeing really a big partisan split um, on attitudes towards immigration with um, Republicans becoming increasingly anti-immigration. And I think that Trump's message did speak to a portion of the country. Um, but we do have to take a step back and say that um, in the latest Gallup polls, you know, these are attitudes, to attitudinal surveys of, of Americans at large. 75% of Americans say that immigration is good for the country. So there really is a silent majority that's in favor of immigration. Um, and 
either keeping immigration at the numbers that it is or maybe even expanding the number of immigrants uh, to enter the country. Um, but uh, those voices have been quiet lately, um, both on the Democratic side, where we feel like the Democratic Party has been playing a lot of defense um, lately, defending against the idea of crisis at the southern border rather than taking really active steps. Um, and um, a number of voices that used to be part of the Republican coalition that really have been quite silent these days, um, you know, uh, the, the George W's of the world um, who had been pro-immigration, people like John McCain, and that uh, piece of the party has been quite silent lately. And, well, and you have you have, you have this, uh, you know, like Republicans tend to emphasize that uh, undocumented immigrants enter the country illegally, or, although many of them overstayed their visas and that the government has the right to decide who to admit uh, to the country and that it's kind of not fair that some people wait uh, for legal visas for years and others enter illegally and they kind of want more border security and the Democrats kind of emphasize compassion and how most undocumented immigrants in this country are hard workers and law-abiding people who contribute to the economy and community and nevertheless they live in the shadows and are constantly uh, in fear of being deported and, and mistreated, and they, they want the legal protection and even the path for citizenship. So somehow, uh, though any real progress seems to be like, uh, should kind of have these bipartisan laws that uh, will both sides will have to, I guess, compromise on, on, on something. My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org are Ran Ambermitsky and Leah Bustan. And their book is Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. It is published by Public Affairs. Uh, COVID has also affected immigration policy. Many international students on H-1B visas face uncertainty, and there are many travel restrictions in place for people entering and leaving the country. Do you think those policy changes are warranted? Well, they may have been uh, necessary at the time, but um, these restrictions are have now been in place for two years, and I think it's time for us to revisit um, the idea of immigration restriction. Actually, um, 2021 was um, the year in recent history that had the lowest number of immigrant entrants um, into the country uh, in, you know, 30 years. And um, we may be starting to feel the effects of low immigration flows on the economy. Um, one of the things that Ron and I have worked on ourselves is understanding um, how immigration restriction affects the economy. Um, some people say if we restrict immigration, then there'll be more jobs around for Americans to take. Um, what we did was we looked at that border closure period of the 1920s to see, is this really true? This was the largest restriction that the country has ever seen, going from a million entrants a year to 150,000. So if we're ever going to see that there's some you know, benefit to the U.S.-born workers of restriction, restrictions on immigration, that's the time in which we would expect to see it. But we don't really see um, that that's the case. Um, there doesn't seem to be a zero-sum nature of the economy. Uh, now, you may say, well, that's the 1920s. What about now? Um, and our fellow economists have looked at um, the question of immigration restriction in a number of different contexts in more modern episodes. And, and what they find really matches with what we were finding. And you find um, that children of immigrants from nearly every country, especially those from the poorest countries like Mexico, Guatemala, and Laos, are more financially successful than the children of U.S. residents, and that that's held true for more than a century. What's happening here? Why does that happen? It just goes against conventional wisdom. 
Right. So, so the, this is a, one of the key findings in, in the book. We find that uh, both today and in the past, the children of immigrants are very economically mobile, uh, more so uh, than the children of U.S.-born parents who grew up uh, in similar households. And this is true uh, for families today from nearly every sending country, including from poorer countries like El Salvador and Mexico and Laos. And, and, and the, and the similarities are striking that the, from between the past and the present. So children of immigrants from Mexico and the Dominican Republic today are just as likely to move up from their parents' circumstances as were children of poor Swedes and Danes a hundred years ago. And, um, and, and yeah. And and uh, Leah, you write that ultimately children of poor immigrants from nearly every country in the world make it to the middle of the income distribution by adulthood. And so the fears of creating a permanent immigrant underclass are entirely misplaced. You also note that the ones who arrive with viable skills in education out-earn U.S.-born workers even upon first arrival. Right. Um, when we think back to the Ellis Island generation, we really have this image in our mind of someone who arrives with a dollar in their pocket. So we imagine that people arrived in poverty. And weren't um, they and then, all listed as white, whether they were or not? Um, at Ellis well, Island? At Ellis Island, you know, um, they had a bunch of categories at the time that we don't use anymore. So, for example, like they would classify Jewish immigrants as Hebrew. Mm. Um, I don't know if that would technically count as white at the time. Um, but there was actually um, a number of immigrants during the Ellis Island period that already arrived with a lot of skills. Um, so half of our migrant flow were from countries like the UK or countries like Germany that were ahead of the US at the time or neck and neck in terms of um, economic activity. So it would be like half of our migrants today coming from Canada or coming from Japan. Um, these are countries that have you know, higher education systems, a lot of tech workers. Um, and if that was our inflow, sure, most of our migrants would be higher skilled. In fact, the Ellis Island uh, era had a lot of those high skilled migrants, and we kind of forget about them just uh, in order to think about those who arrived with very little. So um, what, what about the flip side, Ran? Uh, do we know why the children of U.S. residents don't have as great success as the children of these immigrants? Yeah, it's a great question. And so let, let me just say that the uh, as you mentioned, you know, when we look at, when we do this more even apple to apple comparison, and we look at children growing up to relatively poor parents, or so think about them as families at the bottom 25th percentile of the income distribution, we find that the children of these poor immigrants do better than the children of of the U.S. born who grew up uh, equally poor, and uh, and so this and and again this pattern held for 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 immigrants from nearly from nearly every country and both in the past and today. Now, why did the children of of uh, of immigrants outperform the children of the U.S. born? We find that much of it has to do with locational choice. So immigrants tended to move to locations in the United States that offer the best opportunities uh, for upward mobility for their children, whereas the U.S. Born are more rooted in place. They are less likely to move to these places. And you kind of can understand this. You know, if you are born in a certain place, your grandparents were born there, your parents were born there, and your friends are there, you went to school there, you don't just think about uh, what is the best that maximizes the opportunity for my children. But, but immigrants who already made the decision to cross the Atlantic or to move to another country, uh, they... Uh, they may as well choose to live in a place that they offer opportunities and economic opportunities 
for, for them uh, and their children. And so mostly, much of it has to do with this locational choice and that immigrants are more likely to move to these places relative to the U.S. born. But Leah, yeah, this was really surprising to us, we have to say, because, you know, when we got started on the work, we were thinking that what might separate the children of immigrants is that their parents have a stronger work ethic or that they put more emphasis on education. I mean, that's certainly what we hear um, when we chat with friends, if we're at dinner parties, you know, people say, well, why is this true? Is it because immigrants are somehow working harder? Um, and it seems like what's going on is not so much uh, differences in work ethic, but more um, that immigrants are more footloose. You know, they're more willing to go to the places uh, that offer opportunity. But the, some immigrant the, groups are accused of refusing to assimilate or of being slow to assimilate. Uh, what, what groups are those and, and why are they being perceived that way? So, and so, and isn't so, this is something that's been historical in the past? Similar things were said about Irish immigrants? So, yes, absolutely. It's like a lot of what we see is uh, uh, that you, you often hear the same complaints and concerns about immigrants not being able or willing to assimilate into the U.S. society, only they are targeted at uh, different immigrant groups. So in the past, it was often towards the Southern European immigrants from Russia and Italy. And today it's more targeted towards Mexican and, and, and Muslims and so on. And so one of the things that we, we did in the, uh, in the, in the book and in our research is to try to get at this small, uh, at, the, at this myth of is it really true that immigrants today assimilate any more slowly into society, not just the economy, than past immigrants. And of course, measuring cultural assimilation is very challenging because data on cultural practices like the food and the accent and the dress code of immigrants is not systematically collected. But then we look at various measures that we can look at the, uh, in the big data, like uh, learning English or uh, whether you live in na- immigrant neighborhoods or whether you marry outside of your groups. And, and, and uh, as well as things like, uh, do immigrants give American sounding names to their children when they spend more times in the U.S.? And, and, and what we find is that the, any measure we can look at, we find that uh, uh, immigrants uh, assimi- uh, assimilated and integrated into the U.S. society both today and in the past and to a similar degree. So, for example, you know, like immigrants gave more American sounding names to their children and they when they spend more years in the U.S. And the groups that are accused of the least assimilation, for example, the Italians in the past and the Mexicans today are among the groups who assimilate uh, the fastest, actually. Uh, so... But do you think that some immigrant populations have a harder time being accepted as American citizens than others? I think it's probably true that um, some groups face a lot more um, discrimination, um, a a lot more skepticism from uh, residents who are already here. And that might be precisely why um, we see that immigrants who are accused of being least likely to assimilate are those that are taking the most active steps. You know, in a way, assimilation might be a defense mechanism um, to protect yourself against um, the xenophobia that you face. Um, So in the past, we were seeing that it it was groups like the Italians or the Portuguese who were more likely to change 
uh, the na- their own names or to give their children um, more American-sounding names as they spent more time in the country. Um, and that might be a, an attempt to try to de-emphasize um, some of their ethnic differences. Um, and then today, uh, we see the same pattern for Mexican immigrants. The Mexican immigrants are are the group that are often accused of remaining very insular, only speaking Spanish, living in Mexican neighborhoods. Um, and this is, in fact, the group that's most likely to start giving their kid U.S.-sounding names as they spend more time. We're in a period of what the Census Bureau calls demographic stagnation. What's demographic stagnation? Well, this is a concern about a lack of population growth. I mean, the, there's only a couple ways to, to get more Americans, and one is to have more kids here, you know, a higher fertility rate, and another is to um, import more people um, to become Americans, and that would be have a higher immigration rate. Um, and our fertility rate has been very low lately. Um, and so if we also start um, closing off the border, then the question is, how will the country grow? How will we have population growth? So that's one one case for immigration is that you know often immigrants uh, uh, immigrants who come here are at the working age and they are uh, very likely to be employed and they are very likely to work in the kind of jobs that uh, uh, many Americans uh, uh, you know like don't do either uh, have very uh, the very educated occupations like in science and uh, tech or the uh, the ones that require low education like uh, like washing dishes and uh, landscaping and taking care of the elderly and uh, and that's one way to to uh, to actually expand uh, the contributions of immigrants the big gap is somewhere in the middle <laughs> the, the the middle is where americans tend to work <laughs> Now, you've created the first big data account of immigration in America. What are your sources and processes? Uh, you relied a lot on Ancestry.com? Right. There may be a lot of people listening right now who themselves have accounts at Ancestry.com. It's something you can purchase for twenty nine ninety nine, and it gives you an opportunity to look up your own grandparents. Um, if you go on the site, you can find um, old census data. You can find draft cards from World War II or marriage records. Um, And so this is the source that we started out using. Um, And we basically thought of ourselves like curious grandchildren searching for our own families, but we wondered, well, maybe we can search for other people's families. We can search for the whole family tree of American immigrants um, if we just go one by one. Um, So we started doing this on the Ancestry.com website and we did so much searching that, in fact, it sort of rang some alarm bells at, um, you know, central headquarters. Why is our product suddenly so popular? Mm-hmm. You know, someone is looking up a lot more family members than they ever had before. And it turned out that it was just us, you know, two researchers, and we were trying to construct as many immigrant families as we could. Um, so we ended up having a research agreement with Ancestry, um, and we have some of the underlying census data um, so that we can try to follow as many immigrants and as many children of immigrants as we can, primarily through uh, the old historical census records. So you and, looked and think, at census of, data, then government documents, you did it. Uh, you looked right. at immigrant interviews, congressional speeches, that the, the full range. Uh, has anybody done this before? Well, it's uh, so some people have done have done so, some of it. The 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 thing that made it uh, possible for us to do is think about it this way: after seventy two years in the United States, all the government records become 
publicly uh, available. So you could, in principle, go and look at the 1900 or at the 1940 census and then look up all the 100 million Americans and then look at their names and at their children and where they live and who they marry and how they name their children. And you can, and you can do all of that. But the thing is that up until recently, before the, you know, rise of genealogical websites like ancestry.com and family search, you needed to kind of go and uh, look them up manually or in a microfilm one by one. And that was impractical when you wanted to create a data on millions of millions of families. But with the ancestry.com and, and with the rise of, uh, and with the digitization of all these historical records, we now can go and look up somebody in 1900 and we see that they have a number of children and we can then link up their children to adulthoods to the 1910 and 1920, 1930 census. And this way we can create genealogies of millions of millions of immigrant families that we can follow over time. And only when you have this data, you can start to ask yourself the questions like we are asking, like, is it really true that immigrants started poor and move up the ladder quickly? And what about their children? And how did they integrate more broadly? I have to go to a break right now, but let's return to this when we come out of the break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. with our guests, Ran Abramitsky, a professor of economics and the senior associate dean of the social of the social sciences at Stanford University, and Leah Bustan, a professor of economics and director of the industrial relations section at Princeton University. They have co-authored a book called Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success, published by Public Affairs. So let's get back to uh, the questions that you set out to answer. Is it Really true, for example, that past immigrants move quickly from rags to riches. That was one of the questions that yeah. you were looking at. Uh, yeah, I was just saying yes. So, so the answer for the question is that it's not really true <laughs> that immigrants. Judging from my family, it wasn't. It took a couple <laughs> of generations, right? And judging from Leah's family and uh, who came to the U.S. and we can li- and we can find in the data it wasn't true. And judging from my relatives who came to the U.S. back in the time. Uh, it wasn't true either. And so what we find is that this nostalgic view that uh, Ellis Island immigrants of the past moved quickly from rags to riches uh, is, uh, is a myth. Uh, in fact, many of the Ellis Island immigrants that we follow were slow to climb up the economic ladder, uh, working in manual jobs and, and never making it into uh, white collar jobs even after uh, 30, 20 or 30 years. And like today and even back then, immigrants who started out in lower uh, paying jobs uh, in uh, then U.S. born workers often continued to lag behind throughout their lives, uh, and 
and and so this you know how you know how did this myth come about you know in part it's because of uh, family lore you know we came with nothing in our pocket you know and we we made it and people like to tell that stories uh, to the family many years later but in part because uh, something is that is related to the data that you mentioned that uh, many uh, for many years we just didn't have the right data to check this fact so the data that scholars did have uh, lead them to uh, to kind of misleading conclusion of rapid rise from poverty to riches. And that's because they couldn't follow the same person over time. And with the data that we create, that we can follow the same immigrants over time, we find that immigrants, they do make progress. Uh, don't get me wrong. They do get pros- progress uh, as they spend more time in the U.S., but at a slower pace than was imagined. Now, Leah Ran mentioned uh, the equivalent of oral history, now, oral history is part of our personal understanding of immigration in this country. Uh, how does narrative storytelling within families shape our understanding of immigration and American history? Um, well, we have a, a great anecdote in the book um, of this time that our work was actually uh, taken up um, onto late night television, which doesn't usually happen for professors in, you know, the ivory tower. So mm-hmm. it was exciting for us um, on the Desus and Mero show. Um, and uh, Desus and Merrill went out onto the street corner in Queens and sort of stopped people who were walking by and said, hey, are you are, are your parents immigrants? Are you the child of immigrants? And then they had a bunch of interesting conversations. Um, and in one case, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the conversation that transpired really tells it all. Um, uh, this guy was saying to uh, Desus and Merrill, yeah, you know, um, my dad used to say, like, I came from the DR with $50 in my pocket. Um, and then as time went on and he sort of embellished the story, it became 50 cents. And I think mm-hmm. that's exactly how uh, family lore works is that, um, you know, you tell the story once and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting, but it's not that exciting. And then you work to embellish it over time. One of the questions you also asked was, do immigrants harm U.S. born workers through added job competition? What did you find? So, uh, we find that the story is more uh, complicated. The, the story is not is the story is not uh, that uh, uh, people have in mind a very simple minded story, which is the economy is a zero sum game. You know there is a fixed pie, and so if immigrants come, they must be uh, and they get they are getting a job. The job uh, is probably at the expense of a U.S. born worker because and they they're willing to work wages. cheaper. Because they are willing to work cheaper, because there are only that many jobs that, that are available, and so on. But but uh, but what we find is that the story is not as simple, and that uh, and and in and in the large part because the economy is not a zero is not a zero sum game. And so, as I already you know we discussed before, the immigrants tend to hold. Uh, jobs that have few available U.S. born workers, you know, either very highly educated or very lowly educated, and then the, the, the U.S. natives are, are in the middle. And then when we look at the, you know, Leah mentioned the historical research that we did, the, uh, we can ask the question, you know, when, when, the border, when the border closed in the 1920s, where U.S. born, uh, and uh, way fewer immigrants started to come from a million per year to 150,000 per year. Was it the case that the U.S. Uh, born was, were much better off? And the answer is not really. It's not that their uh, wages started to increase dramatically when the border closed, 
in fact, what we saw is that uh, uh, the economy is more flexible than that. Both firms and people have incentives to adjust. So, for example, farmers, when they start to see that fewer immigrants are coming, they can, rather than hire more U.S.-born, they can start to automate. They can start to focus on uh, products and crops that are more mm-hmm. capital-intensive rather than labor-intensive. And uh, and the other thing is when fewer immigrants can come, you know, other immigrants, from exa- for example, at the time, you know, immigrants from Canada and Mexico were allowed to enter. And so other immigrants start to uh, come into these regions that lost many immigrants. And, and, uh, and so rather than uh, reducing the increase improving the wages of the u.s bond there are other ways that the economy adjusts so that uh, u.s bond were not that much better off and as leah mentioned you know research that was done later on the end of the bracero program and on the uh, and on the uh, other uh, other context you know the the mariel boatleaf from cuba uh, consistently doesn't seem to find that when immigrant when more immigrants come the u.s bond are necessarily worse off I like to think of it like a menu of options that firms have, you know, and the the zero sum idea is like there's only two items on the menu, immigrant workers or U.S. born workers. So if you cut one of them out, then, of course, firms would have to turn to a local guy and say, here's a job for you. Um, But that's not the only two options that are on the menu. And these days, the menu is really expanding. So firms, for example, can outsource. Um, They can move overseas themselves. Um, they can automate, they can use industrial robots um, or, you know, ATM machines to replace bank tellers. Um, there's a lot of different machinery options um, that are available depending on the sector. So if you're not having immigrant workers come in, it's not necessarily like the firm's going to turn to the guy next door and offer the job. There's a whole variety of other options on the menu. Now, do uh, do the high expectations uh, that immigrant parents have for their children play a role in the success of their children, the willingness of those parents to make sacrifices for the future? You know, I, no. I'm sure. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that, like, in the historical data, we can take a look at one element of this, um, which is uh, the role of education. You know, do immigrant families um, ensure that their kids have a higher level of education? Um, even if they might have a, a pretty low income level, they might be really emphasizing their kids going to school and finishing school. Um, so at least in the historical data, the census data that goes up through 1940, we find that that's not the case. So it's really interesting. Children of immigrants are earning more than children of U.S. born parents who were raised in similar households. But it's not because they were getting more education. Um, and if you think about your own family, if you're those people who are listening who have family that came during the Ellis Island period, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of kids during that era that needed, not needed to leave school in order to help earn money for their families. Um, so it's not really that uh, immigrant parents valued education more or pushed their kids for more education, at least not in the past. But you yeah. also it's, know it's po- that it's possible the- that to- it's possible that today it's possible that today things are a bit different in the sense that today, you know, the returns to education uh, have increased relative to the past. It's possible that today uh, immigrants, uh, uh, you know, like they they value more education and they tend to, uh, it's definitely true that they tend to live in uh, in cities and in places with more opportunities for for their children maybe they maybe in part because also they want the children to have access to uh, to to good schools and 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 things like that and you know the de Susan Miro 
show that Leah mentioned, you know, interviewed many immigrants and many of them did mention the struggle and the sacrifices that their parents made in order for them to be, uh, to have a chance at success. And so I'm sure there was always, it, it was always true that, uh, it's always true that parents sacrifice a lot for, for their children in order for them to be successful. Uh, at least in terms of education, it didn't look like uh, immigrants were more educated in the past relative to the U, the U, uh, the children of immigrants relative to the children of the U.S. born. But today, it might be more likely to be the case. But you note that the immigrants who arrive with viable skills in education, quote, out-earn U.S. born workers even upon first arrival. Right, that's right. So today, um, that's true for... In other words, if uh, I'm hiring somebody for a, a highly skilled job... For some reason, I am going to pay the immigrant more than I'm going to pay the the, the U.S. born person who who does the same job. Oh, not necessarily. Um, so this is a very broad statement without sort of adjusting for uh, education level or job title or that sort of thing. Just take the average person who's coming, say, from India. Um, the average uh, immigrant from India, seventy seven percent of them have a college degree. Um, whereas that's true of only 33% of uh, U.S. born residents. So we already off the bat have a group when we're thinking about people coming from India that's substantially more college educated. And in some cases, even with master's degrees or PhDs. So for that reason, um, immigrants from some countries are out earning the U.S. born. That doesn't mean that if we take two PhDs, one from India, one from the U.S., uh, that the PhD from India is necessarily going to be earning more. But just to make the point that today there's a number of um, immigrant groups that are highly educated, um, That with the two um, most educated groups being um, Nigerians and Indians. Hmm. Now, how is the story that you as economists are telling about immigration different from what historians or other social scientists might tell? So it's, uh, you know, we, Leah and I are, are economic historians. So, so it means that we are, we are reading a lot of history and uh, we are also economists and we are also reading a lot of the other social science and, and a lot of the insights uh, from, uh, uh, from these uh, other fields are, are in the book and we are discussing the work. Uh, and so I view it as uh, more, we view it as more, uh, we are for the first time are able to assemble uh, large data sets on millions of immigrants uh, uh, and compare the uh, immigrant experience both in the past and today. We talked about the census records. We also look at Ellis Island records and, and other records. And the idea is that we try to see some of the conjectures and some of the myths and some of the insights from other social sciences. We study them uh, in the big data to see whether they are true and how and to and, and learn about them in the context of uh, of the millions of millions of immigrants that we collected the data uh, about. My guests on today's London Low Paid at Large are Ran Abramitsky and Leah Bustan. Their book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success, is published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, don't you argue that closing the door to immigration could hurt the economic prospects of U.S.-born citizens? How how would that work? Well, these days, a number of immigrants are um, highly skilled, as we were just describing. Uh, and what economists have been finding pretty systematically these days is that higher skilled immigrants, not only do they not take jobs from U.S.-born, say, tech workers or scientists, 
but they actually on net are creating jobs. Um, they're more likely to be working at startups um, or at um, in industries that are expanding. So there are jobs on offer in these places, both for other high skilled workers. Um, Ron and I certainly know working at universities that um, half of our colleagues uh, seem to be foreign born um, and interacting with those colleagues is very uh, creative and has opportunity for expansion. Uh, but there are also jobs at these places for lower skilled people um, who might be working in landscaping or, or uh, food services or in janitorial services. So um, one way in which immigrants uh, are really uh, opening up opportunities for everyone um, is through job creation uh, for the high skilled. Now, you, this book takes a look at what's going on in this country, but immigration is a, a serious matter of concern throughout the world, and especially in Europe, to the point where uh, the British imposed Brexit to keep people out. But also, uh, I did a show recently about how the EU was paying uh, people to keep uh, immigrants from Africa out of Europe. Right. So, so a lot of the, the, the questions that we, we ask are, are probably relevant for, for other countries as well. And you can see the similarities, you know, with the xenophobia, for example, and with the sentiments of, uh, you know, immigrants are not assimilating into society today and they are not, and, and certain immigrant groups are not uh, trying to, to do well. That's not something that is uh, only U.S. specific, as you pointed out. You know, we see that in England, we see that in, uh, in France. Uh, we see uh, this rise in, in uh, like, like an anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, and uh, uh, it's it's a group that uh, uh, you know when 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 immigrant presence is high enough in the country, and I think it's around it's fourteen percent in the U.S., but it's around fourteen percent in the U.K. and in in France. You see you see then that uh, populist politicians are uh, have a tendency to to point to immigrants for many, some of the problems of of the country at large. And m many of these immigrants are refugees. Don't don't refugees assimilate even faster than other immigrants? Well, that's certainly what we're finding in our work for the United States. Um, so, um, I imagine I imagine that's a concern right now with all the people who've left Ukraine. Right. Exactly. Um, so there's been a substantial amount of work done in the U.S. Uh, in recent years that have showed that refugees. Um, move up the economic ladder faster than non-refugee immigrants. Um, they might start out um, with lower earnings, but they very quickly rise um, and um, are, are catching up with the U.S. born quite quickly. Uh, we were the first people to go back and, and look at refugee immigrants from the Ellis Island period, um, and we're finding a very similar pattern then as well. Um, so Systematically throughout U.S. history, refugee immigrants um, are actually assimilating the fastest or quite quickly. Um, one reason might be that they don't expect to ever be able to go home. You know, so if you're thinking, well, I might work in the U.S. for a few years and save up money and then go home to build a new house or buy land in my home country, then your incentives to learn English or find a better job might be relatively muted. As a refugee immigrant, you know, well, there's not much for me to go back to at the moment, so I better make my life in the U.S. work for me. Um, what's interesting, though, is that uh, in European countries, 
um, refugee immigrants are not doing as well as we see in the United States. And so um, we haven't yet put our finger on exactly what is in the special sauce for the United States. What makes it such that immigrants in, partic- in general, but refugees in particular, can assimilate so well here in this country? Um, whatever it is about what makes America special is not necessarily showing up um, in, in terms of refugee integration in Europe. Um, so we think that, you know, while the general topic is something that is also of interest um, in, in European countries, there's something um, sort of special and American about uh, the story that we tell in Streets of Gold. Do you think that it's partly because this country is a melting pot? And even though racism is plays a role in the resistance to immigration, um, it's a lot different when a person of color shows up in a European country, which is uh, almost all white, as opposed to this country, which uh, is as is multiracial. I, th- I think that I think that's probably right. You know that the U.S. has always been a, a, a receiving nation of immigrants. You know, the, from the Ellis Island generation, we look at the immigration even earlier well, and even earlier. Well, exactly. even even the native, the indigenous peoples came from Asia. That's- that's right. That's right. And then, and then, you know, maybe half of the population today in the U.S. can trace their ancestors to either the Ellis Island generation or to today's age of mass migration. So it's a country that is very much a, a country of a, of a nation of immigrants. And uh, Europe, for the you know, for the is be, you know, for a long time, Europe has been a sending country for immigration. You know, like uh, in in this Ellis Island generation, Europe was a sending country of immigrants to the United States, and only recently, in the last decade, it is becoming a receiving uh, a receiving region for for immigrants. So that tradition of like a long uh, tradition of receiving an, uh, immigrants maybe has, has something to do with that. We have very little time left, but I do want to address one other thing. You raised the point that we need more shared facts about immigration rather than relying on sensational headlines about a crisis at the border. What can be done to improve the way Americans think about immigration other than getting a lot of people to read your book? <laughs> Well, geez, Leah? that is uh, that is the big question. Um, How do I we think, get the messaging right? Um, well, I, I take some hope from the past. Um, you know, I when you think about well, what was the politics that led up to um, opening the border in 1965? Um, after decades of attempts to restrict. How was it that uh, eventually under President Johnson, the border opened? You know, when we looked into that period more deeply, we saw that it really wasn't a coincidence. Um, It was actually a series of presidents, starting with President Truman and then Kennedy and then Johnson, um, who made it a point and made it part of their mission to change the way that we thought about immigration, to change the narrative from immigrants are strangers they're interlopers, to actually immigrants are us. The idea of the Statue of Liberty being one of the major images. You're poor, you're huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Exactly. So that was not a coincidence. That was um, a concerted effort to change the way we think about immigrants. Um, And so that gives me some hope because I've seen it done in the past. 
the idea that immigrants build the country, that they're patriotic and that they serve patriotically in World War II, that was messaging that came from the top. And that was a really a constant drumbeat um, from the end of World War II until 1965. I have you to know, leave it there, unfortunately. But my great thanks to both of you for being on our show. Leah Bustan, professor of economics at Princeton University. Ran Abramitsky, a professor of economics and senior associate dean of social sciences at Stanford University. Their book, Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success, is published by Public Affairs. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank, Thank you so you much for having, for having us. us. Oh, well, it's been a great pleasure. Uh, but uh, And, and it, it saddens me to say that that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for her help in preparing today's interview and to this week's audio engineers, Reggie Johnson and Paul DiRienzo, and to Kazaya Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Lopez at Large, for all the important work that they've done throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950. Or give, and then the number two, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Streets of Gold, by Ran Abramitsky and Leah Bustan. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI body. And we will say thank you with a WBAI tote bag and some other perks to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more a month. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI doesn't take foundation grants, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, we are the only station, the New York radio dial that's hundred percent listener sponsored. Help us keep alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we're off Monday, but I hope you can join us on Tuesday when my guest will be David Hackett Fisher, author of African Founders, How Enslaved People Expanded American Ideals. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. 